World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The ravages of America's opioid epidemic are by now well known. Addiction, crime, what have become called deaths of despair. We report on a new study that suggests one long-run outcome of the crisis might also be an effect on voting preferences. And Britain has historically been a pioneer in the business of national statistics. So why is its decadal census, which has been going for 180 years, possibly heading for the chop? But first... Last night, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Bassem Naim, a Hamas leader, confirmed a deal for medicines to be delivered to Israelis held captive by Hamas in Gaza. In return, Israel will allow more aid to enter the Gaza Strip via Egypt. The help has never been needed more. With shortages leading to hunger and desperation, Earlier this week, aid trucks reaching the beach in Gaza City were met with a huge crowd of mostly young men racing to take what food they could. Filming the scene, this man says everyone is focused on getting a bag of flour to feed his family. Each is ready to die for it. Few deliveries get so far north in Gaza. Before the war, hundreds of lorries delivered goods to Gaza every day. Israeli restrictions have now slashed that number, meaning prices are skyrocketing. A Palestinian mother at an aid site in the south of Gaza says she can't afford the basics. A bag of flour costs 200 shekels, $53. It's unaffordable, so she says she depends on aid. Wounded people are overwhelming hospitals. A doctor says the health system has collapsed. There are shortages of supplies and beds, and people are being treated on the floor. Improbable as it may seem, the military campaign in Gaza is not the greatest danger to Palestinians. Aid agencies say that if nothing changes, more Palestinians in Gaza will die this year from hunger and disease than from Israeli bombardment and from the war itself. Greg Karlstrom is our Middle East correspondent, speaking from Tel Aviv in Israel. 
It's a bleak forecast, obviously, that calls for a massive surge of humanitarian aid into Gaza, but that's easier said than done. There are huge logistical problems to getting more aid in, and UN officials say if they're left to try and do it alone without help from the private sector and businesses in Gaza, they won't be able to do it. Could you just set out the situation as it stands in Gaza right now? There is a staggering humanitarian crisis in Gaza. The death toll is around 24,000. That means about 1% of Gaza's population has been killed in three months, and the actual death toll is probably higher than the one that's being reported. About 1.9 million people, that's 85% of the population of Gaza, have been displaced. 1.4 million of those uh, sheltering in schools and other facilities that are run by a United Nations agency in Gaza, some of which are now hosting as many as 30,000 people crammed into one single warehouse in the southern city of Khan Yunus. So mass displacement, people living in incredibly cramped and unsanitary conditions. The World Health Organization says there's one working toilet for every 220 people. This obviously leading to the spread of disease and fears that that will grow worse. And along with that, about two-thirds of the hospitals in Gaza are no longer functioning, either because they have been damaged by Israeli strikes or because they have run out of fuel for their generators, they've run out of medical supplies. So displacement, disease, death, that has been the case for months now, and, and that is what the foreseeable future looks like for people in Gaza as well. And added to all of that, hunger is becoming a problem, is a problem. It is. Everyone is relying on foreign aid now in order to eat because Gaza's own agricultural production has been shut down by the war. And there's simply not enough food coming in. People say a family might receive just a tin of beans or a handful of crackers. And that is all they're getting from an aid agency to try and get the entire family through the day. It's very, very hard to find staple foods like wheat flour. And when you can find those things, they're unaffordable. Prices for flour have gone up tenfold compared to what they were before the war. It's so expensive now that most people can't afford it. Aid agencies are doing everything they can to get food to people, but a spokesperson for the World Food Program says it's not enough. So far, we've reached around 1.4 million people with food, but everyone in Gaza is hungry. There are people starving in areas, and we are not able to give basic food for. So we're talking about a potential famine here. The United Nations uses something called the Integrated Food Security Phase Classification Scale to measure hunger. It's a very technical-sounding system, but basically what it means is that people are categorized from one to five, and if you're categorized as being in stage five, you are starving to death. Now, of the people around the world who are classified as being in phase five catastrophic hunger, the UN says four out of five people in that classification are in Gaza. So famine, a huge looming threat. And we've seen overnight this deal allowing some aid to come through Egypt alongside medicines for Israeli hostages held in Gaza. How straightforward is it going to be to get that aid in and distributed? Go back to the start of the war. For the first two weeks after October 7th, Israel didn't allow anything into Gaza, food, water, medicine, which meant that businesses and families were running down whatever food they might have had stockpiled before the war. October 21st, Israel did start allowing lorries full of goods, food and medicine to enter via the Rafah crossing with Egypt. But by this point, there was already a shortage of food. 
Those lorries continue to enter Gaza almost every day since October 21st, but the numbers that are crossing the border are well short of the 500 to 600 that entered Gaza on a typical day before the war. Now we're talking about usually 100 or so that make it in. There is a very convoluted process for inspecting what is on those trucks. They have to go to one of two checkpoints to be inspected by Israeli authorities. If they find something on that truck that they consider to be a dual-use item, something that might have a military purpose, the whole truck has to go back to Egypt. Everything has to be unloaded, repackaged, and then the whole process starts over again. Once those trucks get into Gaza, then that aid has to be distributed in what is still an active war zone. Aid workers and truck drivers have been killed. That's not even an exhaustive list of the issues facing aid delivery in Gaza, but it gives a small sense of just how difficult it is for the UN and other aid agencies to get supplies into the territory. And you mentioned that the involvement of the private sector might alleviate at least some of these issues? It might. The way everything got into Gaza before the war was largely via the private sector. Most of the goods went via Israel. And of those goods, 90% of them were ordered by private firms in Gaza. Only 4% of the goods coming in via Israel were going to the UN and other aid agencies. So what that meant is if you were a UN agency that wanted to distribute flour to Palestinians in Gaza, you didn't order the flour yourself. You called a private company, and that private company in Gaza called a mill in Israel or the West Bank and arranged that delivery of flour. What's happening now is that Israel is allowing almost no commercial shipments into Gaza. And so the UN and other agencies are having to build this entire supply chain that they never had before. So when you talk to aid workers, when you talk to UN officials, they say one of the first things that needs to happen is that Israel needs to start allowing shipments from its territory, not routing everything via Egypt, as it's mostly doing right now. And that it has to allow some of those to be commercial shipments that are going to private entities in Gaza. Now, it's not clear how much of the private sector is still intact, but aid workers in Gaza think there is still a viable private sector supply chain in the territory that could take some of the pressure off of the UN and other agencies and allow for the flow of more aid going in. And it's not clear, but this deal for aid coming via Egypt looks likely to be limited. It's clear that what's needed here is a, is a longer-term strategy and agreement. It is. It's down to a political decision on the part of the Israeli government. And so, too, is another thing which some aid workers and, and even some Israelis are now pushing for, which is that Israel could supply aid directly to Gaza. Israel is an occupying power, and under international law, that requires it to do everything that it can to facilitate the flow of food and medicine into Gaza. One thing that it could do, and one thing that the Israeli army actually says it's prepared to do, would be to provide that aid directly. Now, that is not something that Benjamin Netanyahu's government has been willing to do or is willing to do right now. The government has said since the start of the war that it's not going to allow any shipments from Israel unless Hamas releases the hostages that it's still holding, who are thought to number about 130 or so right now. So the Israeli government has said it won't do that, but it is something that the Israeli government has an obligation to do under international law. For Israel to fulfill those obligations, though, I think it's going to take concerted international pressure and especially pressure from the United States. The Biden administration has spent months now pushing the Israeli government to change its tactics 
in Gaza to shift to a lower intensity campaign. The Israeli army is now making that tactical shift, but we haven't seen any improvement in the humanitarian situation. It's getting worse by the day. And so I think to push the Israeli government into allowing the flow of aid from its own territory, that is something that's going to require a real diplomatic push by the Americans. Thanks very much for your time, Greg. Thank you. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. America's opioid epidemic is often traced back to 1996. That's the year Purdue Pharma patented OxyContin, a reformulation of a drug that had been around for 80 years. Purdue marketed it hard as a miracle drug, promising pain relief without addiction. Some patients may be afraid of taking opioids because they're perceived as too strong or addictive. But that is far from actual fact. Less than 1% of patients taking opioids actually become addicted. In the nearly three decades since, more than 650,000 Americans have died of opioid overdoses, first from OxyContin, then from heroin and fentanyl. The epidemic has torn families and communities apart, and now one study suggests it's tugging at America's political fabric too. A new paper shows that opioids haven't just become a political talking point, but they're actually maybe shifting voter behavior. Rebecca Jackson is The Economist's Southern correspondent. Drug-related deaths over the past two decades appear to have actually pushed the electorate to the right and even helped Republicans win in some elections. Drug-related deaths have pushed voters to the right. I mean, how do you even go about investigating that kind of link? It's a really difficult thing to isolate. And one of the reasons for that is that you can imagine there are a lot of things that affect both drug use and republicanism. For example, worsening economic conditions have been shown to both make people use more drugs and make people vote more Republican. For this study, academics at the University of Toronto and the University of Notre Dame did something rather clever. They looked at places that had high cancer mortality rates in the mid-1990s. Now, that sounds odd, but the reason they did that is because Purdue Pharma, a big pharmaceutical company, marketed OxyContin, the new pain relief medication, to places that had high cancer deaths in the mid-1990s. What ended up happening is that those places were the ones that had lots of drug overdose deaths in the coming years. That meant that cancer mortality rates was actually a good predictor of drug overdose deaths, but wasn't linked to the outcome of voting Republican. So they isolated areas with higher cancer mortality rates, therefore where opioids were being more heavily prescribed, and they found that more people voted Republican? Exactly. Before 1996, when these drugs hit the market, cancer mortality was not a good predictor of Republican vote share. But after, it started to be. What they found is that counties that had high cancer mortality saw a 13.8 percentage point jump in votes for Republican candidates in the 2020 election. And in presidential elections between 1996 and 2020, 
It boosted Republican nominees by an average of 12 percentage points. Which is a huge swing. Yeah, it definitely is, especially when you compare it to other effects, say Fox News viewership. The launch of Fox News on cable channels only increased vote share for Republicans in the presidential elections by under one percentage point. And here we're talking about 12 or 13 point swings. So it really is a ginormous effect. Right, but we're still on the sort of correlation causation question here. There is some chance that big changes like that come from something else or some things else. The effects are so large that it does beg that question of what else is really going on here. But the study's authors ruled out a lot of other potential explanations. For example, you might think that cancer is simply a proxy for poor health. But the researchers also looked at rates of diabetes and flu, for example, which opioids were not marketed to people with those diseases. And they found that neither of those things, which would be predictors of poor community health, influence political trends. They also ruled out a whole load of other explanations. For example, it didn't seem like the economy, race, migration patterns, or changes in voter turnout were what were driving the effect. But the question that remains here is why the opioid epidemic would drive people to vote specifically more towards the right than towards the left. Is there a hypothesis as to why that's the case? So that's really hard to know, and we're definitely going to need more research to better understand it. One theory is that anger about the epidemic may have made people more receptive to right-wing views, or that people genuinely thought that Republicans would deal with the opioid epidemic better than Democrats. But one interesting thing that researchers found is that over this period, according to survey data, people in these high-mortality towns were actually changing their minds. They found that they were more receptive to hot-button conservative views on things like immigration, abortion, and guns that had nothing to do with the opioid epidemic. Interestingly, Black people changed their minds at similar rates to white people. So this wasn't just a white Appalachian phenomenon. And voting wasn't the only indicator that there was a significant shift here. They also started watching Fox News more and stopped donating to Democratic candidates. If the causal link that the authors identify here is right, then this would be one of the most important political forces in America in recent history. But let's remember that this is just one study. We'll have to see if new research corroborates it. Rebecca, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jason. By 1908, British statisticians had achieved much. Catherine Nixie writes about Britain for The Economist. They had mapped where the drunkest people in Britain were, Swansea, and where the most criminal were, also Swansea. They had chronicled the sanitary state of London's West End, which was filthy, and its reading habits, which were also, at times, similarly filthy. They knew the state of the flannel trade in Wales, poor, the number of fatal fires in London, high, and the rate of emigration from Britain, higher. They knew more than anyone could possibly wish to know about the town of Ramsbottom. But they did not know where the hottest women in Britain lived. It was a lamentable omission. So, in 1908, Frances Galton, noted polymath and inventor, not a noted feminist, came up with a solution. He created a simple tool to record female attractiveness quickly. About his person, he would carry a piece of paper divided into three and a needle mounted as a pricker. Then, 
When he saw a woman, he would prick holes unseen in the relevant part of the paper, depending on whether she was, as he put it, attractive, indifferent or repellent. To rank Britain's women's by looks, all that was now needed was a map, the device and a bit of a prick. Galton set out. The year 2024 might prove to be another significant one for the history of British statistics, thanks to another survey. The British census, which has taken place every decade since 1841, is under review. The government is soon going to decide whether to keep it or to can it. The debate is likely to be fraught. Critics have said that plans to scrap it are based on wishful thinking. Depending on your point of view, a decision to get rid of it would either chime with the country's remarkable history as a statistical pioneer or betray that history. Britain revolutionised statistics. Between the 1880s and the 1940s, a group of British statisticians developed a range of tools to measure things such as correlation, regression and statistical significance that basically changed the world. Every drug, every medical study, every scientific paper telling you to eat more avocados and fewer sausages, almost all of them rely on British statistical innovations from this period. But the problem with British statistical history is that it's dark as well as dazzling. Several of the enthusiasts for statistics were also enthusiasts for another new discipline. The ever-invented Galton coined a name for that too. He called it eugenics. The word statistics was another new coinage, but its etymology implies its more bureaucratic, less sinister origin, the state. European states in the 19th century might have still ruled people whose lives were nasty, brutish and short. But increasingly, they wanted to know precisely how nasty, how brutish and how short. So they started collecting data on births and deaths, what they called vital statistics, to guide them. The fashion spread, and soon Charles Babbage was counting drunks in London, Florence Nightingale was counting corpses in Crimea, while others studied everything from the mortality rate of amputees, high, the literacy rate of criminals in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, low, and the attractiveness of women in Aberdeen, lower. The census has run every decade, with the exception of a wartime break in 1941. Every census documents history and also inadvertently makes it. Early censuses noted that in Britain, 571 people worked as fork makers, 74 as leech bleeders, and that the dubious Welsh were probably fibbing on their replies. It later apologised for that one. The 1911 census, which was boycotted by suffragettes, records the address of the suffragette Emily Davison as found hiding in crypt of Westminster Hall, Westminster. The 1991 census recorded ethnicity for the first time. The 2021 census almost conflated sex with gender before backtracking. And now the whole census is under review. The arguments in favour of getting rid of it are clear. Ten years is a long time to wait to find out how many people are living in Basingstoke. It's far better, say those who want to get rid of it, to use administrative data from the NHS, from schools, from wherever, to paint a real-time picture of who is living where right now. Using administrative data might work, but as a method it's unproven. And also it will miss so much. The census isn't perfect, but for 180 years it has asked Britain where it lives, what it does, who it worships. It has tried to catch lives in a cobweb, and in many ways it has failed. But it has caught leech bleeders and changing mores, 
and Emily Davison hiding in a cupboard. End the census and the cobweb. Fragile, inadequate. But there will be broken. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let me draw your attention to an event going on later today exclusively for subscribers. Zenny Minton Beddoes, our editor in chief, will be in conversation live from Davos with Sam Altman of OpenAI and Satya Nadella of Microsoft, two serious heavy hitters in the world of artificial intelligence. They'll discuss AI's impact on jobs, prospects for regulation, and what the next iteration of ChatGPT means for their businesses and for the world. 3.45 this afternoon, Britain time. You do the math for wherever you are. Tune in by going to economist.com slash Davos Live. See you there, and then see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.